Today, open mic, but for government, how to pay for a civilizational golden age, and why elections may not be as democratic as you think. This is Good in Theory. I'm Cliff Mark. If you have ever heard the phrase, the glory that was Greece, it was probably about Athens. And what's more, it was probably about Athens during the second half of the 5th century BCE, and maybe part of the 4th century, depending on who's counting. Chronologically and geographically, that's a speck in human history. But it's a speck that burned very brightly. If you want just a rough idea of what Athens in this period was like, think of it as the anti-Sparta. Sparta was a military camp, disciplined, austere, violent. These Spartans called themselves the Homoioi because their political institutions did everything they could to make sure they were pretty much identical. And they kept them that way by constant reinforcement and surveillance. Sparta hated change. It was conservative, superstitious, xenophobic, and political power was all concentrated in a council of just 30 old men elected for life. Athens was a whole different mood. It was a maritime trading state, wide open to the world, full of foreign influence and foreign luxury. People from all different cultures and social classes were mixing together, and each was free to live pretty much how they chose. Plato compared the democratic regime to a many-colored cloak, decorated in all hues. And while Sparta, they left behind pretty much nothing except for legends about what great soldiers they were, Athens is still hugely influential in art, culture, literature, architecture, and they innovated in two fields that are especially important for a podcast about political philosophy. The first is philosophy. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle were from here. And the second is politics, because Athens also gave us democracy. Athens wasn't the only democracy in Greece. It wasn't even the first democracy in Greece, but it was the democracy. They carried the democratic idea further than any other polis and became the historical reference point for any philosopher ever since who wants to even think about democracy as a form of government. I'm going to tell you about how Athenian democracy worked, how this weird regime came into existence, and why some people at the time truly hated it. But first, I want to pause to explain what exactly I mean by democracy in this context. Because what an Athenian would have in mind when you say the word democracy is very different from what you or I from the 21st century have in mind when we hear the same word. Nowadays, Democracy is all about elections. If you want to know whether a regime is democratic, you ask, are there free and fair elections? If yes, it's a democracy. You might ask some extra questions about rights, freedom of speech, rule of law, civil liberties, that kind of thing. And the key distinction is between democracies, where you have rights and elections, and authoritarian states, where you don't. In ancient Greece... The idea of democracy was framed a little differently. For them, it was less about specific institutions like elections and more about who held power in society, how power was distributed. And there were two basic models of government to choose from. First, and most common, was oligarchy, which means rule of the few. In oligarchies, political power was concentrated in the hands of a small elite, usually rich, usually well-born, well-educated that kind of person. And the other model of government was democracy, aka the rule of the many. In a democracy, power is more dispersed throughout society. Regular people have an important political voice, they can influence decisions, access institutions, and stuff like that. Now, power can be shared and distributed in all kinds of ways. So it's not like there was a bright and clear line between democracy and oligarchy. Democracy is more of a relative term. Regimes can be more or less democratic. 
The more power the people have, the more widely it's spread around, the more democratic a regime is. The more concentrated power is, the more oligarchic. Now, to break that down a little bit further, I want to distinguish between two factors that can help tell us how power is distributed in a society. The first is very straightforward. It's inclusion. What proportion of the overall population count as citizens? The more people you include, the more people you enfranchise, the more democratic you are. For example, when modern democracies allowed women to vote, they all immediately got twice as democratic in this sense. In ancient Greece, no polis even included 50% of the population. Slaves, women, foreigners, none of them could be citizens. Usually, citizenship was only open to native-born men. But even when you narrow it down just to them, there's still scope for a lot of variation because most polis had a property qualification for citizenship. This means you had to have a certain amount of property even to count as a citizen. And that property requirement was in turn tied to your role as a hoplite. Soldiers were important. And so since they're risking their lives for the city and they defend the city, you have to give them some kind of rights. Which means that in ancient Greece, if you were a hoplite, you're a citizen. But being a hoplite, that meant that you could afford the armor and weapons that you needed to fight. If you're a hoplite, you're already decently well off. It's only middle class people and above. And this was a minority in most Greek cities. Still, in ancient Greece, most of the polis that we call democracies are hoplite democracies. Meaning that they look democratic if you're a hoplite, if you only count the hoplites, but that they exclude everyone below that threshold. And one of the reasons that Athens was considered so democratic is because they had no property requirement. If you were a man born of Athenian parents, you could be a citizen, hoplite or not. And including poor men made Athens by far the most inclusive regime around. I understand that from the perspective of the 21st century, a city that excludes slaves and foreigners and women from citizenship is not going to seem impressively democratic. But it looks better when you compare it to Sparta, which only enfranchised hoplites who could afford to train their whole lives and never earn money in any other way. This was a very narrow franchise. But even if we know how inclusive a regime is, that doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about how democratic it is. It tells us who counts as a citizen, but not how power is distributed within the citizen body. And again, the more concentrated the power, the more oligarchic the regime, the more distributed, the more democratic. Take Sparta, for example. Sparta has a general assembly that all citizens belong to. But that assembly doesn't have very much power. Most decision-making is concentrated in a small 30-man Senate. So regular citizens have a relatively low access to power. This makes it oligarchic. But Athens, on the other hand, in this category, access to power for regular citizens, Athens is a total outlier. It is unique in the history of the world. Common citizens in Athens had more opportunities to participate in government, exercise power, and influence big decisions than in any other regime that I know about. It was truly an instance of government by the people. And now, we can look at how it worked on a concrete institutional level. If Sparta's institutions were all guided by the goal of making the city into a giant killer beehive, then the institutions of democratic Athens were designed to put the people in power and to keep them in power by preventing any kind of elite takeover. To catch the overall style of Athenian democracy, think amateurism. Think back to the apology episodes when I talked about Athenian justice, how there were no lawyers, both the prosecution and the defense were just these citizens presenting their own cases, and the untrained jury acted as judges. The whole Athenian regime kind of worked like that. But first, let's talk about the assembly. It was called the Ecclesia, and it was the ultimate political authority in Athens. 
The Athenian assembly didn't have an elder council telling it what it could or couldn't do. It decided on the laws, the taxes, when to go to war, when to make peace, which missions to run. It decided on public works projects, religious policy, and it audited all the public servants. It was a lot of work, so the assembly was in session all the time. There were 40 set meetings every year, but there was always more because things would come up. The group met on a hill called the Panix, where you could fit a little over 6,000 guys. And Athens had 50 to 60,000 citizens, so obviously not everyone could show up at once. But it was first come, first serve. That meant that any citizen could turn up on any assembly day and participate. And participate doesn't mean just watching or voting. One of the key political principles of democratic Athens was isogoria, which is like freedom and equality of speech. So the citizens, they weren't just entitled to say what they wanted. They also had equal access to the most important political platform in the land. You didn't need to be elected. You didn't need to be rich. Any citizen who felt compelled to do it had the right to stand up and address the assembly in session and to try to persuade the assembly to do whatever it is they wanted them to do. If you have any really politically obsessed friends or conspiracy aunts, imagine that they had the right to address Congress or Parliament whenever it was in session. You will have something like how it worked in Athens. Except you would also have to imagine that there was actually debate happening in Parliament or in Congress. Because that's what happened in Athens. The Assembly wasn't just ratifying laws or voting on decisions proposed by political parties in private. They were getting up, proposing policies, debating them, and coming to a collective decision together. If I want war with Sparta, I have to get up and convince a majority of my fellow citizens to vote for it. There's no political parties, nothing that today we would call a government or an administration. Just a big group of citizens, different every day, trying to convince each other what to do. And participating in these big democratic open meetings, that was probably the most common form of political participation. But in addition to that, Athenians could get involved by serving in public office. There were a ton of government jobs that were called magistracies, and the people who did them were called magistrates. To keep things democratic, Athens had a whole bunch of little techniques and institutional design hacks to encourage regular people to be involved and to prevent elites from taking over the whole enterprise. And the first technique was just to make sure there were plenty of jobs to go around. There were lots of magistracies. For example, the 6,000-man assembly that's different every day is hard to organize. So the Athenians, they had a council whose job it was to organize the business of the General Assembly, prepare the topics for debate, and generally keep the administrative wheels of democracy turning. But instead of making it a tight 30-man council like in Sparta, they made it a 500-guy council. And it was a full-time job for all 500 of these guys. And that was just the beginning. There were a ton of public offices. From military general to manager of the agora to inspector of olive trees or even vice chancellor of yogurt, for all I know. And these jobs turned over quickly. Most of them only lasted one year and you could only hold them twice in your whole life. And what's more, you couldn't have them on consecutive years. Some jobs, they only lasted one day. Why? Well, one all this churn meant that everyone who wanted to participate in government would eventually get a chance. But two, this fast turnover prevents anyone from occupying one position and building their influence and power from there. It helps to prevent elites from forming. And another technique to help put common people into power that other Greek cities didn't use was Athens paid people for public service. The guys in the council were paid, People were paid for jury duty. And eventually, Athens even introduced pay for people to show up to assembly. In most cities, it didn't work like this. In most cities, public service was seen as a thing that good people do out of the generosity of their great public spirit. 
But in practice, when you rely on that, that means that the only people who ever serve in public office are people who already have money and don't have to work for a living. When you pay people for public service, it's not as a reward for high performance. The salaries were not very high. It was to give poor people access to the system. And that's why whenever I hear a politician nowadays saying they won't take their salary, they'll save the taxpayer the money, they'll donate it to a charity or something, I always think that anyone who believes this is a good idea thinks that we should live in an oligarchy and that non-rich people have no business in government. Athens paid its public servants to include the common people, and it worked. A massive portion of Athenian citizens were involved directly in government in some way or another. But still, the most exotic and most effective technique for avoiding elite capture of all the political offices was how they picked people for public office. They pulled their names from a hat. There are several technical terms from this, like selection by lot, allotment, sortition, selection by lottery, and it worked like this in Athens. At the beginning of every year, anyone who thought they wanted to serve in public office could put their name on a list. And then they would just pick names randomly off the list to fill different jobs. This way, everyone has an equal chance at exercising power. There were a few exceptions. Very high-stakes positions where expertise really mattered, like military general or city treasurer or guy in charge of the water supply, these positions were elected. But wherever possible, the Athenians used the lottery method. And this looks weird from the modern perspective. We're used to professional politicians and professional civil servants. We like to make people win an election or pass an exam, or at least have some kind of qualification before we hand them the reins of state power. Selection by lot that means that everyone in every job is a beginner. It's amateur night, but for running the state. And there are obvious drawbacks to that method. But it does prevent the rich kids from hogging all the good jobs. Because there are no patronage networks, no bougie resume building, no way to jump to the front of the line. In the Athenian mind, selection by lottery was the most democratic way to choose someone for a job. The last democratic institution in Athens that I want to mention is ostracism. In modern democracy, we can vote politicians that we don't like out of office. But in Athens, they had a way of voting politicians completely out of the country. Every year in Athens, the assembly would have a yes-no vote on whether they needed to hold an ostracism that year. And if the vote was yes, there was a second vote where everyone could write the name of someone they wanted gone on a little piece of broken pottery and they'd come and they'd put it in a big pot and they would count up these pieces and whoever's name turned up the most, they got exiled from the city for 10 years. It wasn't considered a punishment you didn't lose any property. You were in good standing when you finally came back. You just had to go. And this was another way to protect democracy because all the guys that the Athenians voted out were prominent political figures. They were guys who were maybe a little too ambitious. They were people who were leaders of factions who didn't get their way in the assembly and they didn't want them around making trouble. Anyone who might pose a threat to democracy was a potential target for ostracism. By now, I'm sure you'll have noticed that the institutions that Athens used to create their democracy are very different from the institutions that we use to create democracy today. In fact, they're so different that some people wonder if modern democracy and ancient democracy are the same kind of thing at all. But before I even touch that question... I want to say that even though the institutions are very different, a lot of people see a real political kinship between Athens and modern democracy. And I think that's because we share very similar values. And a big part of how we know this is because of a man called Pericles. 
Pericles was the great democratic leader of Athens. And when I say leader, he didn't have any formal position or official authority. There was no president or prime minister or anything like that. Pericles was a leader because he was really good at standing up and convincing the rest of the city that they should go along with his ideas. And he had to do that every time he wanted to get something done. And he got a lot done in his lifetime. He built on the work of his predecessors, so he wasn't starting from nothing. But still, Pericles brought radical democracy to Athens. He was the one responsible for a lot of the institutions that we've just been talking about. Lowering property requirements for public office, pay for juries and magistrates, all that good stuff. And in addition to all that explicitly political democratic reform, Pericles also presided over the city's cultural golden age. Socrates, Aristophanes, Phidias, the Parthenon, all that stuff happens on Pericles' watch. He started a huge building program on the Acropolis, and other public works and festivals he built up the Athenian Empire. Pericles was so associated with Athenian greatness that when people want to talk about Athens at its very peak, they often call it Periclean Athens. Anyway, during the war with Sparta, towards the beginning, Athens held a big official public funeral for all the men who died under arms that year in the war, and they picked Pericles to give a speech. The speech is called Pericles' Funeral Oration because it's an oration given by Pericles at a funeral. And the speech tells us a lot about Athenian democratic ideology. Because in it, Pericles doesn't just say how brave and amazing the soldiers were. He decides to make his speech about how amazing the whole Athenian regime is. How it's the institutions that he helped to bring in and the general Athenian way of life that makes Athens great and made the soldiers great. Obviously, this is a politician giving a speech at a patriotic event, so it's definitely propaganda. But even though propaganda doesn't always give us a perfectly accurate description of what's going on in a society, it does give us a good feel for the official values of that society. Propaganda and political speeches are like what a society puts on their brochure. Small caveat, we don't have an official transcript of the speech. We have a version of it written by the historian Thucydides, but that's what we're going by. And if you go and read it, it will sound very familiar. I can easily imagine a modern democratic leader making a quite similar speech if they were trying to big up life in the free world compared to a totalitarian enemy. For Pericles, the enemy is Sparta. And the comparison between the two cities runs through the whole speech. The Spartans, they live their whole life basically doing military drills, eating gruel every night in the mess hall, and having every little aspect of their lives watched and controlled. But in Athens, says Pericles, people grow up free and happy and they have an appreciation for beauty and philosophy. There are public games and festivals and private luxury. People live pretty well. They have nice houses. The city is open to the world and all the riches that that brings. And despite having a much nicer life than the Spartans, the Athenians are still just as tough as them. Tougher, actually, says Pericles. And whereas the Spartans are brainwashed and blindly follow whatever their leaders say, the Athenians are reasonable. They deliberate together and they think before they act. And in their own lives, Athenians are free to live however they like without being judged by their neighbors. There are some things in the speech that really wouldn't work nowadays, but as a whole, it reminds me of American Cold War propaganda, where life in the free world is compared to the miserable Soviet system. And there's one point in Socrates' speech that I want to highlight, and that is that, right near the beginning, Pericles he makes a point of saying that in Athens, wealth and birth do not matter at all to advancement. He says that any citizen can distinguish themselves in public service, and that's because of merit, not privilege. The reason I want to mention this point is because, no matter how weird the open assembly meetings of Athens and the lottery system seem, the idea that wealth and birth do not matter to your political standing is 
absolutely central to all democratic ideologies, ancient or modern. We moderns institutionalize the idea in a very different way than Pericles did, and I'm going to come back to that later. But first, I want to explain how this truly exceptional city, this cultural powerhouse and democratic outlier, got to be how it was. The history of the Athenian polis started like all the other ones, in a struggle between a traditional aristocracy that dominated politics and a rising hoplite class. The first big event where this struggle kicks off is in 594 BCE. That's around 140 years before Pericles comes along. Anyway, this struggle is going to last nearly a century. A ton of really interesting history happens. There's rampant debt slavery, civil conflict. There are waves of progressive reform and then conservative reaction. There's even a pretty good tyrant who comes in and takes over for 30 years to defend the rights of the hoplites. There are rebellions and foreign interventions and coups. And in 507 BCE, 90 years later, a guy called Cleisthenes comes in. He kicks out his Sparta-backed rivals. He brings in the common people on his side and he completely reorganizes the Athenian constitution. He does it in such a way that breaks the power of the aristocracy, and everyone agrees that he is the one who brought democracy to Athens. But, at this point, Athens is still a hoplite democracy. Power lies with the hoplite class, everyone below is more or less excluded. This isn't the supercharged radical democracy we were talking about earlier, that comes when Pericles comes on the scene 50 years later. How do we get from here to there? Well, in order for Pericles to do what he did, he needed a lot of money. Because having a cultural golden age isn't cheap. You need to pay for all the festivals and the infrastructure and the art, the big building programs, the temples, the public theaters, the baths, the gymnasia, everything. And never mind just having a society that's rich enough to pay for and appreciate art and philosophy and all that. But when you take all those costs of the cultural golden age and you make that golden age democratic, it gets even more expensive because now you need to pay all those magistrates, the 500-man juries. Democracy is expensive. So where did Athens get the money? Unlike Sparta, they didn't conquer a vast territory and enslave all the inhabitants but they did have a unique economic development that fed into the political development. This is going to take a minute, but stick with me because maybe one day you'll want to have a democratic golden age. Step one, Athens found a bunch of money. Athens found some very rich silver deposits on their land, and they mined it using very cruel forms of slavery, but it gave them an initial pile of money to work with. And then... They made a bet that paid off big time and eventually led them down a democratic road. In 483 BCE, about 20 years before Pericles and his mentor Ephialtes get through their first big democratic reform package, the assembly is trying to decide what to do with all the silver they found. And a guy called Themistocles, he stands up and he argues that Instead of doing a direct payout to all the citizens, Athens should invest the silver in building a navy. Because having a fleet could be really handy, especially if the Persians, who just invaded a few years ago, decide to come back. Themistocles wins the argument, he persuades the assembly, and they build a fleet initially of 200 triremes. A trireme is a giant 200-man rowboat that had three levels of rowers, that's where the tri comes from, and how they work is there's a bronze ram on the front of the boat, and you row, row, row into the hulls of other boats, put holes in them, and sink them. Three years after Themistocles convinced Athens to build the fleet, the Persians do come back. And that's when you get the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, fighting off the Persians for a few days. The Spartans get all the movies and comic books, but those guys actually lost. In the end, it was Themistocles and the Athenian navy that finally sunk the Persian fleet 
and sent Xerxes back to Persia. Huge victory, the navy is covered in glory. And now, Athens starts a big alliance called the Delian League. And it's all the cities on the islands and around the coast of the Aegean Sea, maybe over 300 cities. And the idea is, it's an alliance to carry on the fight against Persia. Every city is given the option to either contribute boats and men to the fleet, or money to fund the war. And most of them pick money. And the alliance, there are a lot of economic benefits. It pretty much ends piracy on the Aegean. It improves the trade situation and gives everyone access to goods from all over the place. But it also pays off directly to Athens. Because as time goes on, Athens dominates the alliance more and more, and it starts to look less like an alliance and more like an Athenian empire. Pretty soon after the alliance was formed, Athens was spending money from the alliance treasury to build up its own navy. And that at least has a military rationale, but it was also spending money for purposes that had nothing to do with the war. You know the Parthenon, the giant temple on the Acropolis, the most famous building in Greece? That's alliance money right there. And to make sure it kept rolling in, Athens stopped accepting men and ships as contributions and only accepted cash. And if any of the allies got cold feet and decided they didn't want to pay their alliance dues or they wanted to drop out, Athens wouldn't let them. They would row some boats over to the town, besiege it, tear down its walls, take their fleet, and impose tribute. So Athens had hundreds of cities paying into this protection racket. And that is where they got their money for their golden age. And the next question is, now that you have all this money, why did Pericles decide to spend it on Parthenons and public festivals and political participation for the poor? Why wouldn't the hoplites and the rich people just keep it for themselves? Well, this is where we come back to military organization. In other Greek cities, the hoplites had clout not just because they had a bit of money, but because they were the backbone of the military. They were the ones who protected the city, they risked their lives, so they had some pull. But Athens was a naval power, and the economics of naval warfare are very different from the economics of phalanx warfare. For a hoplite phalanx, you need middle-class guys who can afford to bring a shield and armor and some spears. For a navy, nobody can afford to bring their own ship. Those have to be a public expense. But once the ships are built, all the sailor needs to bring is a big jug of water to stay hydrated, an oar, and his two arms to pull it. And these boats need lots of arms. Each trireme had a crew of 200 men. So the initial navy of 200 ships at 200 guys a ship, that's already 40,000 guys. And the size of the navy just grows from there. Where do you get 40,000 guys? You recruit in the poorer classes. And this is why Athens started going beyond the hoplite middle classes and making policies that benefited poor people like giving them political rights and public baths and big festivals. It's because the poor men were rowing the boats. The strength of the city as a whole depended on them. They were the ones risking their lives. They were the ones making Athens rich. So they became an important political constituency that other people had to appeal to. The navy gave Athens an empire, and the empire gave them the money for a golden age. But because that navy was manned by poor men, it also ensured that the Golden Age was a democratic one. Athenian democracy, at least the picture of it that Pericles presents, I think looks pretty good to modernize. Equal rights for all, individual freedom, the rule of the common man. Who could object to that? In 5th century Athens, lots of people objected to that. Because remember, democracy didn't come about because of some universal awakening about human dignity. Democracy was the very recent result of a long series of struggles, first between the old aristocracy and the rising hoplite class, and then with a new class of poor sailors jumping into the mix. In the end, democracy won. But every step of the way, there were always people on the other side of the struggle who thought that it was going too far. 
being anti-democracy in democratic Athens was a whole look. A lot of Athenian critics of democracy, they were big fans of the Spartan system. They would take on Spartan manners. They would give their kids Spartan names. They would grow their hair long because that's how they wore it in Sparta. And this was especially popular for upper-class Athenians. And I always like to look at these kind of arguments because these days, there's nobody out there really making the case against democracy. So getting back to a historical period when it was a live question whether it was a good idea or not can be really interesting. And one of my favorite ancient anti-democratic texts is called The Constitution of Athens. It's by an anonymous author that we now call the Old Oligarch. And I'm going to get into this text, but before I start, I want to remind you that most ancient thinkers had a very different view of class and society than people today in modern democracies do, especially in North America. Because modern North Americans, we tend to think of people as belonging more or less all to the same class. The ancients, they had a totally different view. They thought it was just obvious to anyone who looked that society was divided into two distinct classes. Elite in masses, rich and poor, few and many. However you put it, they were two distinct social groups. This is what the old oligarch thinks, and it's going to be easier to understand what he's saying if you keep that in mind. You may have guessed from his name that the old oligarch is a supporter of oligarchy, and therefore would not have been very impressed by Pericles. So the text is a six or so page analysis of democracy from a quite critical perspective. I've written a speech, or rather a rant based on that text, and Alan Mark of the Tankards and Tales podcast is going to give it to you. It goes like this. Athenian democracy is the strongest, most stable, most self-reinforcing system of bad government that I've ever seen. The rabbles say and do whatever they want, and they profit from all the public offices except the ones that actually matter, like generalships or cavalry commands. Those they leave to the betters. But generally, the poor get more than the hoplites, the wealthy, and the good men do. Fair enough. They're the ones rowing the boats, crossing the sea, and shaking down our allies for tribute. They're the reason Athens is strong and rich. But when you put the masses in charge, you get exactly what you'd expect. Bad government by unworthy men. The better element of all societies rightly despise democracy. Because good people care about having a good and just society. The rabble only care about getting what they want. They are ignorant, uneducated, and their poverty leads them to disgraceful behavior. Decision-making under democracy is utter chaos. Athens governs itself by inviting literally anyone off the street to come in and persuade the assembly. And they can be persuaded by someone else the very next day. This seems completely insane. Because if you want good government, you're going to leave the speaking and the laws to good people. Intelligent, educated people. But that's the key to understanding democracy. They don't want good government. The mob profits more by listening to wicked men who pander to them than to good ones. If Athens put its best citizens in charge, the first thing that they would do is end popular rule and put the mob back in its place. Democracy is nothing more than letting the worst people dominate their betters. It's politics flipped upside down. And it's not just their politics that are upside down. Their entire social order is anarchy. Slaves and foreigners run free and live in luxury without fear. They look you right in the eye and you aren't even allowed to beat them. It is my personal theory that the reason you're not allowed to beat other people's slaves in Athens is because the citizens are so ugly and badly dressed that you can't tell them apart from slaves. Athens is crawling with foreigners and the luxuries they bring in from around the world. And all this mixing has completely corrupted the Athenian character. 
every Greek city has its own specific dialect and style and way of life, except Athens. From the words they speak to the slop they eat, Athens is nothing but a motley hodgepodge from across the world. But this is nothing compared to how they spend money. Everyone knows that the poor people cannot afford feasts and sacrifice and temples. That's the natural order of things. But in Athens, they have them all. Athens has twice as many festivals as any other city. They have public temples and baths and wrestling gyms and changing rooms, all at the public expense. And who do you think uses these? It's the poor. Who get everything they want? The poor. And you know what? I can't blame them. The rabble want to rule and to be free? A vile democracy is the only regime that will let them do it. I enjoy the old oligarch. He's completely open about his contempt for the lower classes, and that's rare nowadays. And he combines that with arguments that I feel like I hear all the time. Too many foreigners, too much public spending, no respect for old hierarchies. He's kind of like this exaggerated caricature of a snobby conservative, and I find him funny for that reason. But he's not here just for comic relief. He raises an important point about class and democracy that I want to talk about. Like I said, pretty much everyone in ancient Greece took it for granted that there were two kinds of people in the world, the few and the many. The few only included people who were wealthy enough to be hoplites or had more. And usually it only included the wealthier hoplites. But it wasn't just that the few had more money in the bank. Most people thought that the many and the few were different kinds of people. You could tell them apart. The few were smarter, better educated. They had better families. They were more virtuous, smarter. They were better looking. They were just better. The many, that's everyone else. The nobodies, the rabble, the rowers, the poor. When someone says the people in ancient Greece... This is usually who they're talking about. The Greek word for the many was hoi poloi, and it wasn't a compliment. At the beginning of the episode, I said that whether a regime was a democracy or an oligarchy depends on inclusion and access to power, how power is dispersed in society. But the old oligarch brings out another class dimension. The way he sees things the choice between democracy and oligarchy is a simple choice between which group is going to rule. Either you have an oligarchy and the wealthy dominate the poor, or you do it the other way around. To a guy like the old oligarch, Athens, like everywhere else in the world, is divided into decent people and trash. And democracy is the name of the regime that puts trash in charge. This is why the old oligarch doesn't like it, and he was not at all alone in this view. It was pretty common, no matter what side you were on, to think that politics was class war and that democracy was the poor winning. But if you go back to that speech by Pericles that I was talking about, none of this stuff really comes up in the same way. Pericles knew about the class divisions in Athens, but he downplays them. He presents an alternative vision of society where politics isn't about class war. This may still be aspirational, but he has this idea that even though there are inequalities in wealth, politically, everyone can still be equal. Everyone can have the chance to advance and to distinguish themselves and to exercise power, and everyone can pull together for the common good. And the last question I want to ask today is, whose side are we on? As residents of modern representative democracies, are we with Pericles who thinks that wealth and birth shouldn't matter to political status and that anyone should be able to participate? Or are we with the old oligarch who thinks that the hoi polloi should be kept completely out of politics? Ideologically, the answer is obvious. The ideas of equal rights and that birth and wealth should not matter to your political standing are absolutely central to modern democratic ideology, so our hearts and minds are with Pericles. But institutionally... The answer is a little more ambiguous. Modern and ancient democracies have very different ways of taking the democratic ideal of political equality and turning it into a reality. In modern democracy, 
We use elections. That's the test. If you can vote in free and fair elections, then you live in a democracy. And good for you because nobody wants to live in an undemocratic regime. But that's not how Athens did it, obviously. They gave out public offices literally at random. And they made all their major political decisions in giant town hall meetings where any citizen had the equal right to speak. And probably you can think of some pretty obvious reasons why we don't do it that way anymore. First of all, direct democracy with millions or hundreds of millions of citizens is just impractical. We can't all get on the same hill and talk. But even if we could, I don't think most people would be comfortable with the kind of amateurism that the Athenian system brought. Because we know what an equal right of all citizens to speak their minds would look like. It would look like an internet comments thread or Twitter. And I, for one, would be nervous if tomorrow we decided to turn over policy-making power to Twitter. And selection by lot might not be better. Imagine getting on the PA system at your local Walmart and saying, would all customers with license plates that begin with the letters A to G please come to the lobby to decide whether to bomb Iran? This should seem odd to us because in modern democracies, we just expect there to be some kind of vetting process before you get to exercise power. And usually, we use elections for that. We have a system where all of the deliberation and decision-making is done by a small number of representatives, and they are hopefully the best and wisest among us. But even though only a small number of people actually exercise power, we still think it's democratic because we the people have a say in choosing who represents us. And even though we don't all get to exercise power like the representatives, we all have an equal opportunity to become representatives. Anyone can run for office. It's up to the people to choose the best candidate. It's political equality topped with a little bit of meritocracy. And the key point of it is that just like Empericles' Athens, birth and wealth are not a barrier. At least that's the theory. But the ancients had a different theory. According to their theory, elections weren't democratic at all. They were oligarchic because elections give huge advantages to elites. Why did they think this? Well, what does it take to run and win a democratic election campaign? Time, money, fame, connections. These are all things that the few have and the many lack. Elections, on this view, give the masses a choice between which of their social betters will rule them, but they never let the masses rule themselves. So which theory is correct in our case? Are modern democratic elections the best way we have of realizing political equality in large-scale societies? Or do they just guarantee that the few will always dominate the many? There are plenty of ways to answer this question, but I'm just going to keep it really simple and look at the leaders of English-speaking democracies near me. The current UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he went to Eton, and that is probably the poshest school in the world. Then he went to Oxford. The American president is a famous rich kid. And in my home country of Canada, we have three levels of government. So I'll start at the top and work down. Our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is the son of one of our most famous and popular previous prime ministers. He's the closest thing we have to Canadian aristocracy. The leader of my provincial government in Ontario, Doug Ford, He's the son of another successful provincial politician and the brother of a former mayor of my hometown, Toronto. And the current mayor of Toronto is a lawyer and former corporate executive called John Tory. And he's the son of another John Tory who founded a big law firm and was an exec at the same corporation. And he was the son of another John Tory who also founded a law firm who was the son of another John Tory who ran one of the biggest insurance companies in the province. The family is on Wikipedia, and it's a line of posh boys that goes all the way back to before Canada was a country. So if there is a category of rich, well-born elites in this world that we could fairly call the few, all of these politicians are part of it. And the reason they have power 
isn't because they used their personal fortunes to corrupt the system. Pericles would say, that's how the system works. Elections, by their very nature, favor the rich and the famous and the well-connected, and they exclude the poor and obscure. He would tell us that if we were at all serious about our government-by-the-people rhetoric, we'd let the people actually govern themselves, and we'd fill our public offices by lottery. Pericles would take a look at our so-called democratic institutions, and he would say that, far from being democratic, they're actually very well-designed to help the few dominate the many. And the old oligarch, he would say exactly the same thing, but he would add, very well done. Thank you to Sepeda for editing and social media help, and to Alan Mark for being a great old oligarch. Alan's got a D&D podcast called Tankards and Tales that you should go check out. The music between sections was by Michael Levy. It's played on a custom-made ancient-style lyre, and the song I was playing is called, no kidding, The Golden Age of Pericles. It's great, and you'll be hearing lots more of his stuff in the coming episodes. This episode ends our three-part kinda historical, kinda theoretical series on the Greek polis. When I started working on this podcast a couple of years ago, my original plan was to start with Plato's Republic. And I thought that to prepare for Plato's Republic, I just wanted to give a little introduction to the character of Socrates, and a little introduction to the concepts of democracy and oligarchy, because they would be coming up a lot. And I got carried away, and now we have nine episodes and no Republic. But that's what's next. I'm excited about it. It's a weird and wild text, and I've got some really great people to voice the characters. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. But to make sure it's completely ready to go, I'm going to take a short break from publishing, and I'll be back in four weeks with the first episode of Republic. But before that, the last little theory fact that I want to leave with you is a bit from the old oligarch that didn't really fit into my story about elections in class, but it did make me sit up and notice because it's so weirdly familiar. I think that the old oligarch made the first recorded complaint against political correctness. I quote, In Athens, they do not permit the people to be ill-spoken of in comedy. But if anyone wants to attack private persons, they bid him do so, knowing perfectly well that the person so treated in comedy does not come from the populace and the mass of people, but is a person of either wealth, high birth, or influence. In other words, the old oligarch is mad that in democracies, you're not allowed to punch down anymore. Remember the good old days when you can make a harmless joke about how slaves are liars and all craftsmen are simpletons? Well now, the theater audiences can't take a joke. These days, you're only allowed to make fun of the rich and powerful. And how is that fair?